I brought along a newspaper this morning, so if things got slow, I'll read to you some other things. They're a little boring. Um, when Kerry uh, told me that he had COVID and he couldn't preach, he hinted, would you preach, Dad? And uh, I had preached on, as you know, Genesis 4, 1 through 16, which is about the amazing depravity of Cain in killing his brother and the amazing grace of God in the mark of Cain. So that was 4, 1 through 16. So I thought, well, I'll just follow along. Now, you may say, that was quite a scripture to read on the first day of Advent with Christmas lights up here and so on. And where is this going to go? Uh, I think it'll get there. So just uh, bear with me this morning. Now, um, one of the, the uh, texts or one of the poems that's often read at a high school graduation is William Henley's poem, Invictus, Unconquered. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard it several times uh, to begin high school graduations. Well, if you're reading it uh, basically as I need to be determined to get things done, that's okay. But if you really read the words of Invictus, it is drenched with the spirit of Cain. And here it is. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I've not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the whore of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Well, Cain's fierce anger at the rejection of his inadequate and presumptuous offering betrayed a self-righteous dependence, independence and a smoldering hatred and resentment to God. Uh, Cain's murder of his brother, as we saw, was actually a strike against God who had shown favor to Abel's offering instead of his. He killed his righteous brother, who most accurately reflected the image of God. And this he did without the slightest hint of remorse. You go back to that minimalist description of how he killed him and what he did. Not an emotion at all. The only emotions in the story is this simpering, whimpering guy at the end of the story who's concerned about his future. No remorse. It's just self-pity. So when Cain went out from the Lord's presence to live in the land of Nod, uh, which is wandering, uh, it was east of Eden, he was bloody and he was unbowed. 
And even though he had that gracious divine mark, the mark of Cain for protection, he was full of disdain and anger and resentment towards God. And that taste of anger, bitter, sweet, chemically mixed with blood, clung to his palate, and he could taste it, and it energized him. He'd show God. He'd show them all. His anger was exhilarating. So, it, so to speak, molten energy coursed through his veins. He was Captain Kane. It matters not how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, great attitude, huh? Redemptive attitude. Well, what happened to Cain? Did God uh, leave him? And, uh, uh, and, and did, did Cain sort of fade into anonymity? So we never hear of him? No, the answer is he prospered. In fact, his posterity took the lead in producing cities, music, agricultural implements, weapons. It took the lead in producing civilization. Well, it was a dark prosperity because paradoxically, as Cain descended, civilization ascended. Culture fell as it rose. And what you get in this, if you're just saying, what's this about in this section of Genesis? It's about civilization's demise and its glorious rise. It's going to end up positive. We also get a good glimpse of grace in all of this at this Christmas time. Now, Cain's history is, is highly compressed. It's verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. Cain knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. That's very interesting. Now, I, have to, I think we have to understand that Cain had wandered probably for several decades or even more before he settled down because we have to understand that Cain's wife had to come from the loins of Adam and Eve. Right? Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. And then there were daughters and great-granddaughters. Uh, it's very interesting that, that Genesis 5-4, and you ought to put your eyes on this, just across in the next page. For the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So it's, it's a time of longevity, and you, you can see what happened here. So multiple births issued over the decades. Now, Cain's building a city in the time of Enoch's birth was sort of a defiant, in-your-face violation of God's sentence for Cain to be a wanderer. He built a city. 
And this willful act is, is consonant with his behavior because Cain had not changed at all. He was still Captain Cain. City probably wasn't much. Uh, the, the word that's used here for city can be applied to any settlement or smaller grade, so it's, it's more like Cainesville, I think. But the city was a statement to God and his family and his younger replacement brother and their progeny that he was captain of his soul. Now, Cain's naming of the city Enoch, which means uh, dedication or to initiate, was his attempt to perpetuate his own name to build a monument towards his own posterity. This has been, this has been the, the tendency of powerful men and women through history to name things after them. The psalmist wrote about the futility of this. You like to look at Psalm 49 sometimes because it talks about all this kind of thing. Psalm 49:11, the graves, he's talking about these people, the graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Aster, Astoria, and we could go on and on and on. Now, as it was, Cain's decision to settle down and establish his own line of descent indicates his determination to go his own way despite the directives of the Word of God. Well, nothing else is said of Cainite culture except the list of names of five generations to the infamous Lamech and his two wives. And I'll read verses 18 and 19. I think they were read better by the reader this morning. Thanks, Phil. Uh, but to Enoch was born Ired. And Ired fathered Mahujael. And Mahujael fathered Methusiel. And Methusiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Now, what you want to see right here, with the growth of civilization, the first sign of degeneration in civilization's demise and its rise with the institution of polygamy. God's will had been given to Adam and Eve as a part of creation, Genesis 2.24. Cain knew it backwards and so did his descendants. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. But what happened is polygamous departures developed almost immediately in Cainite civilization and ultimately in Sethite civilization that was to follow. And so you read of the horrors and the miseries of polygamy in the life, for example, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus himself would call believers back to the creational ideal warning. This is Matthew 19, 8. From the beginning, it was not so. But what you want to note well is that civilization advanced rebellion against God's word advanced. 
And, uh, but the description, amazingly, is one of singular prosperity. Look at verses 19 through 22. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Now, um, in a biased account, say from the Sethite point of view, the godly point of view, wouldn't have painted things so rosy is this, but this is a divine assessment of history as civilization is developing. And the truth is, is Derek Kidner, uh, one time warden of Tyndall House Cambridge said, the truth is more complex. God was to make much of Cainite techniques in his people. So, Jabel, animal husbandry, and what happened is the greatest of God's people later tended flocks, Abraham, right? David, Moses, yeah. And Jubal, the gift of music, read the book of Psalms. All the lyrics and all the music. Tubal, technically gifted craftsmen are described various as his people. This is the description of the guys that built the tabernacle. This is Exodus 36.1. People, men, in whom the Lord put his skill and intelligence to know how to do any work. I like that, any work. The point is, godless Canaanite civilization birthed massive cultural advances that enriched all of life. Now, it doesn't mean that the godly Sethite culture was not making similar advances, but that Cain's progeny distinguished themselves in this. Let me, let me just go back a moment on this. Ada's two sons by Lamech, uh, Jabel and Jubal, excelled. One in the pastoral life, livestock, agribusiness. Let's put it that way. That's, 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 that's what he does. The other in the music arts. Jubal's name uh, bears connection with Israel's concept of jubilee and celebration with words that indicate joy and happiness. In fact, Jubal's name also corresponds with the melodic ransom, the Yobel, which Israel later used to joyously announce the year of jubilee. So Jabel and Jubal quite a pair, kind of people we want to bring to a party. You know, lamb chops and music. Or shish kebab. Uh, Zillah's son, Tubal Cain, the half brother of Jabal and Jubal, is described as one who, and I'm quoting the 22nd verse, was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So Tubal Cain is the ancestor of technology and industry. Now, however primitive his work was, and, 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 and Tubal literally means uh, hammers or 
or uh, sharpens. His work, no doubt, included weapons and implements of war as well as farming tools. And the dark side of the technology is suggested by the fact that he is not simply called Tubal. I mean, if I was naming three kids and I wanted to call them, I would just go Jabel, Jubal, Tubal. Come home. But Tubal Cain doesn't work. Uh, one of the commentators notes that with the appendage of Cain, the grim side of his craft comes to mind first. The dark side of his craft. And so, Tubal Cain is going to kind of hints at the terrifying song that follows. So these cultural skills which deal with production of food, the arts and technology, should be and can be devoted to the highest interest of human life and the glory of God. Right? All those things. However, civilization advances apart from God have untold potential for evil. Okay. Nuclear technology is a double-edged sword. Today, thousands of lives are being saved by procedures only possible through the understanding of the nucleus and nuclear medicine. What a boon it is, and, and it's, it's staggering potential, which we may see if, if civilization goes on. At the same time, in a flash, an H-bomb could kill more people than nuclear medicine could save in 50 generations and maim generations to follow. It, I've, I've never been able to get this quotation out of my mind. It's from Oppenheimer. He quoted from the Bhagavad Gita at Almogordo, New Mexico, as he watched the initial explosion of the neutron bomb. He said, the radiance of a thousand suns. I am become as death, the destroyer of worlds. So the potential for good and bad. Microchip can help you find your dog or it can light a, take a, guide a smart bomb through your window. And I have to say, when it comes to chemicals, can we imagine a life without the drugstore, without painkillers, without estrogens, without antibiotics? At the same time, can we imagine life in this part of Spokane where whole city blocks are under the control of meth and cocaine? Right? And people are wrapped like uh, fish and chips in oily newspapers along the road. Or what a gift music and the arts are, but what power for evil if misused. This is typical, and this goes back to Malcolm Muggeridge, who made this observation back in the 80s that stage and screen portray evil as exciting and goodness as dull and boring. When in reality, the very opposite is true. Life in the grip of sin is tedious and unfulfilling and, and uh, uh, dull, whereas life full of God's goodness is bright and polychrome 
and full of color and adventure. Uh, we all understand there's many types of today's music, and some music due to debasing lyrics and melody are debasing, but we have to understand that high culture, like Bach and Beethoven, can be used to romanticize adultery and perversion. Virtually any evil can be made to appear morally compelling by the skillful use of script and music and cinematography. You need to keep that in mind. Now one more thing. Culture used or abused offers no redemption. Culture doesn't redeem. Neither low culture nor pop culture nor high culture apart from God, apart these these three things I just made, apart from God, can redeem. No combination of agricultural abundance, excellence in arts, and technology can save society. And here's an example. Nazi Germany, in its day, considered itself the repository of kultur, culture, high culture, high art. They were the leaders in technology and the masters of abundance. All the while, the Third Reich enslaved helpless people and committed unspeakable barbarisms. Culture. Now, here the story of Canaanite civilization saves us from overvaluing culture. The descendants of Cain through Lamech could manage their surroundings so as to prosper, but they could not manage their lives. Today, there are millions of people who indulge their family in abundance, in the arts, in sports, in the boons of high-tech culture, even as their lives spin more and more and more out of control. Wow, that's a pretty dark picture. Well, let me make it a little darker. The picture darkens because here I see Lamech. I, this, this is the modern imagination of Lamech, but, you know, but he's been working out. He's all cut. He's got spandex shorts on. He's got barbed wire tattoos across his chest, and he's holding an Uzi. That's how I see him. Now, no sword is mentioned in the poem. The dark double name of Tubal Cain implies that, his math, that, that culture had made weapons, and so traditionally this is called the Sword Song of Lamech. Listen to it. Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is revenged sevenfold, then Lamex is seventy-sevenfold. That is a song of the dark, dark ecstasy. If the song were sung today, I would imagine this guy with his barbed wire bandoliers tattooed on him with his Uzi singing and intoning the, the, the song rap style. 
Lamech said to his wives, said to his wives, yes, said to his wives, yes, said to his wives, listen to me. Uh, you guys could do this a lot hipper than me. But it could be done. Ada and Zillah suffered the humiliation of polygamy in the context of brutal, of a brutal, savage, remorseless male. And it glories in violence. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. The savage disposition of killing, this is really a mere boy, Hebrew yelled, a child, for wounding him. It was the point of his boast. I'll kill anybody, anytime. He wears violence as a badge of honor. This is a remorseless, consciousless, carnivorous, genocidal man. Well, just as marriage was debased with the rise of Canaanite culture, life was devalued. Can we say otherwise of our advanced culture with violent icons, violent music, and violent streets? Now, I, I did bring the paper along for a reason. This is, this is the Wall Street Journal the day before Thanksgiving. Got a little positive thing across the front here. Uh, Thanksgiving travel soars as holiday gatherings rebound. But as you go to the end of this section in the Wall Street Journal, the final page, I read, hack revealed cocaine, cash, and corpses. You know what that story is about? Exponential evil through technology. That's what it's about. It's about an organization called uh, uh, Sky, Vancouver-based Sky Global Incorporated, which advertises you can get encrypted messages with them that they will pay you a half, half a million dollars if you can encrypt, unencrypt them. Well, the criminal world, the narcotics world, has taken advantage of this and sent encrypted messages all around the world so that Europe now has more drugs coming into it than the United States. Through the Netherlands, through Belgium, and so on. And I'm just reading what they say. They say, the messages and photos pinging across the world astounded even experienced investigators. They broke the code. One user sent a photograph to demonstrate he'd carried out an order to torture a victim. When one enforcer in Western Europe country couldn't find the man he was supposed to pummel, he received a new instructions. Here are pictures of his wife. You can break her legs. Exponential violence in culture. And I'm just talking about one aspect of it, right? So much for civilization. The final stanza of Lamech Song's glories in exponential violence, and here it is. This is where this is going. He says it. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, remember God said, if anyone kills Cain, 
I will avenge it sevenfold. He said, I'll outdo God. Then Lamech is 77-fold. Exponential vengeance. And the sins of Lamech would come to regard vengeance in terms of a duty. It became a part of the human tradition. Do you know what the, the Mosaic associated law, lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, really is? It's meant to, to extend grace. Instead of you take my eye, I kill you, you can only take my eye. Meant to be equity of some sort within that, that context. Today, civilization stockpiles huge reservoirs of exponential vengeance, and at the right time, will rain it down on the world. You know, Lamech, of course, couldn't dream of Christ's words, and if he had, he'd have probably stopped his ears. But very significantly, in the New Testament scripture that was read today, Jesus references very text and Lamech's merciless song is a backdrop to teach Peter about the necessity of mercy and forgiveness. This is Matthew 18, 21 and 22 that began the text this morning. When Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven times exponential forgiveness the opposite of the spirit of Lamech a gracious avalanche of forgiveness Jesus presented himself in direct contrast with Canaanite civilization he rained down grace and his followers must do the same uh, you, you heard the parable that followed about the guy that didn't forgive and what he said, you won't be forgiven. Jesus quotes this and says the same thing at the, at the end of the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive others their tra tr trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's a, there's a, a well-circulated story, uh, John Wesley's story, about he was in Georgia doing evangelism, and there was a British general by the name of General Oglethorpe there, and in conversation with Oglethorpe, General Oglethorpe said to Wesley, I never forgive. And Wesley said, then, sir, I pray that you will never sin. Well, Lamech's dark ecstasy is answered by the exponential ecstasy of Christ's forgiveness. And this section concludes then with the birth of Seth. And again, as in the case of Cain, God's grace becomes explicit, and that's in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring, another seed, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Uh, she, she attributes the birth of her child to the grace of God. And Eve's faith also shines because another 
offspring is literally another seed which references the promises, Genesis 3.15, about the seed of Adam crushing the head of Satan. She has those words in mind. She is now, as Adam calls her, the mother of all living. And you have to think about this woman. You can imagine having, she was actually basically sonless when she gave birth to Seth, right? Abel was murdered. The other son is off and left her. And she gets this lovely boy. Great things would happen through him and her face sores. Well, the grace of God was not in vain in the line of Seth because you read in verse 26. This is a, this is a great break in, in the narrative of Genesis. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And here's the deal. That word call upon the name of the Lord generally is considered by scholars to say proclaimed the name of the Lord. Sethite civilization began to proclaim the name of the Lord. So in Earth's earliest ages, a special people began to develop which proclaimed the name of the Lord. When Canaanite civilization began to rise in the worship of the shrines of abundance in art and technology, when abuse and violence and devaluation of life became commonplace, when vengeance became exponential, when men fancied that they were the captains of their own souls, then it was that Sethite civilization began to proclaim the name of Yahweh, the Lord. They proclaimed the name of the captain of their salvation. It's called that in Hebrews, you know, Jesus is. Christians must lay this to heart during primeval history, before the Abrahamic covenant, before the law, before the Davidic covenant, God's people were known for this. They proclaim the name of the Lord, as they always did. Well, here we are at Advent. I think about the name of the Lord being proclaimed. A dark, dark time in Israel. We hear from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14, this will be a sign for you. A virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name, what? Emmanuel, God with us. You turn over the page in the same context of messianic predictions and you have Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, right? You go about 700, 750 years later, and there's Joseph the carpenter wondering about what's going on. And the angel of the Lord comes to him, and he says he's going to have a son. They're going to name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sin. And then he quotes Isaiah 7:14, born of a virgin, fulfilling that. Thirty years later, John the Baptist is walking about the holy city and he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Right? 
three years later, not 30 years later, that lamb, Jesus, became sin for us, for our sake. He made him to be sin. The lamb of God became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you get an exponential atonement for every sin and exponential forgiveness. And then as the apostles began to preach, the book of Acts tells us they declare before the unbelieving leadership of Israel, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven whereby you must be saved. So we come to exponential grace this time of year. And we need to revel in it through the movements of Advent in the following weeks. May God bless his word to our hearts this morning. Amen.